You guys can go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. One of the most interesting books that I've read in a long time, I read just a few months back. A book by Charles Dickens called A Tale of Two Cities. Now, that book's been around a long time. And I have a couple of buddies that we get together and we read books that we feel like we should have read back in elementary school or high school or whenever they were assigned to us. But somehow the education system or you know, our own apathy has failed us. We're trying to catch up from lost time. So we read The Tale of Two Cities together. And I was struck by the amazing story of substitution at the heart of that story. Now, I'm going to go ahead and give you a spoiler alert. I'm about to spoil the main plot of A Tale of Two Cities. But if you're reading that kind of book for a cliffhanger at the end, you're reading it for the wrong reason. So I'm just going to go ahead and do you a favor and tell you to read it anyway. The book, at the center of the plot, is a comparison between these two characters, a guy named Sidney Carton and a guy named Charles Darnay. They couldn't be two more different men. Whether united is over their love for the heroine of the story, a woman named Lucy. So Darnay is actually a refugee from France living in England. He was part of the French nobility, and he was so disgusted by the way that his family was treating the French peasants that he couldn't take it anymore. And he saw that the, that the winds were shifting and that the French Revolution was already beginning to happen, and he knew that things were not going to end well for people with families like his. So he, he, he turns to, to England. The other guy, Sidney Carton, couldn't be any more different. He's a washed-up legal professional, an alcoholic, disappointed with himself, feeling like he let his family and everyone else down, that he had not amounted to anything. And the only, the only flicker of light in his life is his love for this woman, Lucy. Of course, he's too down on himself to ever make this love known, and it's, it's Darnay that marries Lucy, and Sidney Carton decides that he's just going to befriend that family. He's never going to say anything about his affection for Lucy. And he's just going to try to be there for her good no matter what comes. And you guys can already anticipate what happens. Charles Darnay hears about the French Revolution. That things had turned really bad over there really quickly. That heads were literally rolling all over the place. The guillotine was in full operation. And he hears that one of his friends has been captured and is facing death. And he feels like it's his duty to return to France and try to do what he can to get this guy out of prison. Well, it doesn't take him any time to get recognized once he's back in France for who he is. He's a member of the nobility, and therefore he is guilty implicitly. He's got to die. He gets captured. And much of the book, hundreds of pages of the book, is setting up this, this event, this trial followed by appeal, followed by trial and appeal leading up to the death of Charles Darnay. All the while, Lucy and her family are doing everything they can to try to get him out. And it's the night before he dies, the day or the day before he dies, that Sidney Carton realizes he's got the solution. He pulls a favor. He blackmails somebody, I believe it was. Somehow gets into the prison cell where Charles Darnay is, is kept. Drugs him, takes his clothes, puts them on, and sends, the guy, sends Charles Darnay out so that he can get out of France. And Sidney Carton decides he is going to die in place of Charles Darnay. Not for Darnay's sake. Of course, it's his love for Lucy that drives him. But here at the end of his life, on his way to the guillotine, which is the the culminating scene of the book, he's reflecting back over all the things that he'd done that disappointed him, over all his, his life full of emptiness, and realizing that he was now able to give this family a life of joy and happiness. And the last sentence of the book is worth the price of the book. 
It's worth the 20 or 30 hours it'll take you to read the book. He says, it is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. It's an amazing tale of substitution. And that kind of thing lies at the heart of a lot of the best stories that we tell as in our culture and in all cultures past, from, from Les Mis to the, uh, the hot movie of my high school days. I think it was called Armageddon, where the guy takes one for the team you know, and saves the world by driving his spaceship into some meteorite. At the heart of Christianity is a substitution story. We talk around here a lot about the fact that the Bible is really one big story, that we're supposed to understand it as, as a story that moves from, from the beginning through to the creation of all things to a fall into sin where we disobey and rebel against our Creator to all the things that God does to bring us back to Himself. And at the heart of that story, just like at the heart of Tale of Two Cities and so many other stories that we find compelling, is a story of substitution. In fact, I think we can go so far as to say that if you miss the substitution... At the heart of Christianity, you miss the significance of Jesus. Our passage in Mark today, Mark chapter 14, gives us some insight into the nature of this exchange. All through the story, Mark has been building up towards the death of Jesus. He's been answering the question piece by piece, what did Jesus actually come here to do? And chapters ago, it became clear from Jesus himself that what he'd come here to do, first and foremost, was to die. Now, the point of Jesus' death, the reason he had to die, it's a complicated one. There's no one passage that sums it all up. But in Mark chapter 14, what we get is some insight into one aspect of what it means for Jesus to die, to give his life, as he said himself, as a ransom for many. In Mark 14, the main point of this chapter, we see that this death of Jesus has a great deal to do with abandonment. The death of Jesus has a great deal to do with the theme of abandonment. I think the main point of this chapter, the main point of this phase in Jesus' march to his death, is that Jesus was abandoned so that we don't have to be. Jesus was abandoned so that we don't have to be. Let's read the story first, and then we'll get into the details. Would you mind standing with me in honor of God's word as we read from Mark chapter 14? This is the word of the Lord. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can go do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. 
And when they had heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat in the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, 
The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. One of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you didn't seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The first and most important theme running out throughout this chapter is that Jesus was abandoned by everybody. The action begins to pick up at the beginning of chapter 14. All along, especially since the middle of Mark's gospel, we've been building towards this moment. Jesus has been on his way to Jerusalem, on his way to die. And in chapter 14, things begin to happen fast. The chief priests finally decide they're going to kill him, if only they could find the right time. Then, in another omen of his death, a woman breaks a costly vial of ointment and anoints him for burial. She probably doesn't even realize the significance of what she's doing, but Jesus does. He knows his time has come. But the story really picks up in verse 10. It's in verse 10 that we are introduced to the central piece of the plot, that Jesus was abandoned. Now, let me walk through one by one, the examples of abandonment. It starts with Judas. In verse 10, with no mention of motives, with no insight into why he would do what he did, we're told that Judas decided to literally sell Jesus out. Why he did it isn't explained to us, but why the chief priests are so happy about it makes a lot more sense. They realized that if they were going to kill Jesus, they couldn't do it. They couldn't seize him at a time when he was in public because he had so many adoring fans. They figured it might, it might spark some sort of revolt if they tried to grab him then. So what they decide is that they're going to wait until a time when Jesus isn't surrounded by people. But if they're going to do that, they're going to need an insider who knows where Jesus is when. Even more specifically, they're going to need somebody who knows where Jesus sleeps at night. That's why they needed Judas. Jesus and his disciples had come to Jerusalem for the Passover, and the law stated you had to eat the Passover inside the city of Jerusalem. So that meant Jesus and his disciples weren't going to be making any long trips outside of the city to go to, go to bed like they had been before to the town called Bethany. They were going to have to bed down much closer to the city. So sure enough, after they've eaten their Passover meal, they go to a garden just outside Jerusalem, and that's where they make camp. It was a perfect opportunity, but only an insider would have known where to find them. That's why the chief priests were so happy to hear from Judas. To fully appreciate Mark's point here, though, we've got to be able to step outside of our familiarity with Judas. We, for, for us, reading this story, it's preordained that Judas is going to betray him. We already know that Judas fits that type. We've got to try not to see his actions as a foregone conclusion, though. For Mark, I think the most important identifier of Judas is that he was one of the twelve. This guy is one of Jesus' 12 closest followers that he had poured his life into for a period of years. And now, for some reason, he's turning his back on Jesus. 
That's what makes the pain of the episode come through so clearly when we look at how the betrayal actually went down. If you skip ahead in the story to verse 43, where Jesus and his disciples are in the garden, they've made their camp in the Garden of Gethsemane, and now all of a sudden Judas shows up, and he's got these armed men. And the way that he marks Jesus gets at the pain of being betrayed by one close to you. He marks Jesus with a passionate kiss, an empty gesture of a love that just isn't there. He calls Jesus rabbi, my master, knowing that he thinks Jesus is a fraud or else he wouldn't be turning him over. We know from experience that nobody can wound you more deeply than someone that you love, someone that's close to you. They, their lack of respect for you wounds you much more deeply than anyone else could. Here in, in Jesus, Jesus' example as he's arrested, we see that This person, one of the 12 people he's poured his whole life into, just doesn't even take him seriously. He was abandoned by those he loved most. And only Judas was the black sheep in the family. Unfortunately, that is not the case. His actions are only the first example of abandonment that Jesus suffered. Next in line was Peter. And this gets even closer to the inner circle of Jesus' relationships. So they've eaten their meal. They're on their way to their campsite. And he strikes up a conversation, predicting, in fact, that he was going to be struck down and that when he was struck down, everybody was going to turn their back on him. Everyone would flee. Peter, of course, was always quicker to speak than he was to think. And he jumps in saying, there's no way I'll turn my back on you. I'd rather die than deny you. Jesus tells him, of course, that that very night he would deny him three times before the cock finished crowing. Verses 66 or 72, which we didn't read, if you just look ahead, show that's exactly what happened. While Jesus is facing his executioners, while Jesus is owning up to his identity as the Christ, knowing it's going to cost him his life, Peter repeatedly refuses to even admit that he knows Jesus, much less follows Jesus. Don't miss this. Do not miss the significance of this betrayal. Peter is as close to Jesus as it gets. Peter has been taken into the inner circle. He's been privy to things that were only shown to a select few. And it was Peter in Mark chapter 8 who was the first to make the good confession of Jesus. Remember that passage? The dramatic turning point in Mark's story where Peter, where Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? They rattle off many different options and he asks them, who do you say that I, can, I am? And it's Peter who stands up and says, you are the Christ. And now, put to the test, it's Peter that denies his master. What the story shows is that the difference between Judas and the other disciples was only a difference of degree, not of kind. Peter abandoned Jesus too. And the scene in the garden shows that ultimately, so did everybody else. The signs are bad from the get-go. Jesus asks him to pray with him, to stay awake while he prays, and he comes back and they're asleep. And then when Judas shows up, all these armed men ready to do violence to them, everybody turns tail and runs. Verse 50 is one of the shortest verses in the Gospel of Mark, but it says everything. They all left him and fled. Jesus, since the beginning of his ministry, Jesus had avoided the kind of fame that could have been his. Gathering together hordes of followers as some sort of rock star with a bunch of groupies. He had that option and he turned it down. Instead, focusing all of his attention on a select group of people. And now when the rubber meets the road, when Jesus needs him most, 
those men who'd been the focus of his life for years leave him. Got to remember that Jesus was a human. That Jesus experienced the full range of human emotions. And you can imagine what this felt like. You can imagine the loneliness and the isolation that Jesus would have felt in that moment. Ultimately, though, the greatest example of Jesus' abandonment here comes not from his disciples. Ultimately, in a different sense, Jesus was abandoned by his own father. He was abandoned by God himself. One of the most gut-wrenching stories in all of the Bible is the story of Jesus coming to terms with his death on the night before he died in the garden and interacting with his father in prayer. Before now, before this moment, Jesus has mentioned his death over and over again, but it's been just a mere fact. It's been something that he knew would happen, that he was marching towards, but now that fact had become reality. It had become reality in his own experience. It's something we've all experienced. Think about some major event that you've gone through in your life, whether that be the birth of your child or, or marriage or some big exam. You know how you, you talk about it for, for months. You even plan all of your life around it to some extent as it comes closer. But there's something about that night before. You know that it's going to go down, that you get that feeling in the pit of your stomach. It just begins to churn. Because what had been an idea has now become reality. That's where Jesus is in the garden. He's crying out to his father, knowing that what he's got to what he's got to go through is excruciating on a level that none of us can even imagine. He he addresses his father with a term of deep love and affection. He calls him Abba. Here, the man whose life and ministry has been building towards this one final moment, his death, asks not to die. He asks his father, is there any other way? Is it possible? Is there any other solution? It's not an absolute request. He knows what needs to be done. He's willing to do it. It's a question about any other possible way. And God, his Abba Father, is silent. The weight of Jesus' abandonment by the Father is something we can only scratch at the surface. But if you skip ahead to Jesus' death... When he's on the cross, his cry is not one of pain. His cry is, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he feared, what he dreaded most in these hours in the garden was not first and foremost the pain that tends to dominate our way of thinking about the cross. It's images of Jesus' pain that are in our minds and that are in the art throughout church history and, and that are in movies like The Passion of the Christ. We fixate on the torture that Jesus experienced, but that wasn't what Jesus cried out about. When Jesus was faced in that moment on the cross with, with the culmination of what his whole life had been building towards... He cries out about abandonment from his father. Now step back with me. If the central theme of this story, running all through Mark 14, is Jesus' abandonment by those who are close to him, the other consistent, even more more remarkable theme is that Jesus knew this was going to happen. Jesus marches to it with his face full forward, knowing exactly what lay in his path. His abandonment came as no surprise to him. Look at all the examples. He predicted the betrayal of Judas over dinner. He predicted the betrayal of Peter as they were walking to his camp. He told Peter he was going to betray him. He predicted the, 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 the flight of all of his disciples, saying that when you strike the shepherd, the, the sheep 
will flee. And I think his anguish in the garden shows that he understood the weight of the separation from his father that was coming for him. Jesus knew what he was getting himself into. So the question that we're left with is why in the world would he choose this? Chances are all of you have experienced abandonment, loneliness, isolation at some level. You've had friends who failed you or even worse, who've turned against you. You've had parents or families who haven't loved you well or haven't understood what you've become. Or you've had friends who just seem to always misunderstand you, don't really show interest in understanding who you are. You've known the pain that comes from feeling that, that, that no one cares. You've been lonely. You've been isolated. You've felt helpless. And you know that those are the worst moments. There is nothing that feels worse than that. So why? Why would Jesus choose that fate for himself, knowing full well what it was he would experience? That's the question that, that is hanging over this entire story. Why did Jesus choose abandonment by everybody? I think the clear message is that Jesus chose to be abandoned so that you don't have to be. Jesus chose to be abandoned so that you don't have to be. It's the plain and simple and earth-shattering message at the heart of this text. Jesus was abandoned, and Jesus will not abandon you. I'm going to press this in a little bit in three steps. I'm going to talk first about the, the nature of abandonment. I think that we can understand punishment for sin as a kind of abandonment, the necessary punishment for sin, and that's what Jesus absorbed. Then I want to talk about this language of a covenant that Jesus introduces in the middle of all his talk about who's going to betray him. I think that's the key to what Jesus offers us. And then I want to take some time to encourage you with the implications of, of this. What we have is a substitution story. Jesus being abandoned so that we won't have to. So let's talk a bit about this abandonment. I think Jesus was abandoned here, ultimately, and by everyone, because that is what sin deserves. Jesus was abandoned because that's the punishment that sin deserves. And here's what I mean. Christians believe that God created the world, that he created everything that is. That he did this ultimately not because there was some lack in himself that he was trying to fill through creation, but because he was so overwhelmed with joy in his own being that he wanted to reflect that joy widely in the things that he made. That's why the psalmist says things like the heavens declare the glory of God. That's why Genesis in the, in the story about creation says that human, humanity was particularly created in the image of God to more than any other thing that God made reflect what God is like. So God created everything in the world so that through it we could enjoy him and come to understand him and reflect on him. Everything good, everything beautiful, all love, all light, all joy comes ultimately from God like beams that radiate out from the sun. That's the way that Christians understand the world and why it's here. Now, if that's the reason for creation, it's also how we understand the nature of sin. Perhaps the best way to understand what sin is, is is to see it as our refusal to acknowledge God as the creator, to acknowledge God as the source of everything that's good, and, and, and God is the one who has the right to our love and our obedience. In brief, we choose to live as if God isn't there. That's what sin is, to live in such a way as if God isn't there, as if all the things that we enjoy about this world come from some other source, come from ourselves, come from, from others that we might devote our lives to. We choose to live as if God isn't there. 
And if that's what sin is, one crucial way the Bible talks about punishment for sin is as God basically giving us what we ask for. Sin is basic, sin's punishment is God giving us what we ask for. We live as if he's not there, abandoning him, so he gives us that reality. He takes himself away. Divine punishment for sin is ultimately a mystery we're never going to fully understand. But I think one of the best ways to describe the concept of hell is as a place that is completely absent of God, a place where God is not. It's a place of absolute emptiness, absent love and joy and beauty and all things that are good because it's a place that's absent of God himself, who is love, who is joy and is beauty. It's a place that's abandoned by God, and it's what we all deserve because we first and foremost abandon him. I think that's the nature of sin and the nature of the punishment that sin requires. And that's what's absorbed by Jesus on the cross. Every individual abandonment that we just charted through, every single one of his friends that turned against him was only a means to the end of the ultimate turning away of the Father, the ultimate absence of the Father that Jesus had to endure. It's that abandonment that caused him to cry out, Why? Have you forsaken me? Jesus gave his life, poured out his blood, ultimately, so that we wouldn't have to endure that final separation from God. That's what Jesus means, I think, when he says to his disciples over dinner that this is the blood of the covenant poured out for many. In the middle of all this talk of abandonment, right in the middle of all of his predictions about who was going to abandon him and when, Jesus inserts this statement that goes straight to the heart of everything he came here to do. He promises his followers, offering them the cup, that this blood establishes a covenant that I am making of my own accord through my own actions and giving to you freely. This blood establishes a covenant that will never break. Jesus died, in other words. He endured abandonment so that he could create a relationship with us that's the opposite of abandonment. The covenant is the very opposite of abandonment. It establishes a fixed and permanent relationship that can't break. It's a promise that there is nothing in heaven or on earth or under the earth that can separate us from the love of Jesus. He endured abandonment we deserve, and in its place, he gives us a covenant that means we will never be separated from God. I think that's where Paul's coming from in Romans chapter 8 where Paul asks, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? You might also phrase that, who will separate us from the covenant that Jesus has made? Shall tribulation, shall distress, persecution, or famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is why Jesus was abandoned, so that we will never have to be. And here's why this is encouraging for you. Encouragement goes so deep and in so many different directions, it's impossible for me to anticipate where you might need to hear this message. But let me give you a couple examples. Jesus offers a covenant bond that extends to you no matter how sinful you think you are. 
a truly beautiful thing about what Jesus did here, about what this story and its details ultimately point us to, is that Jesus was willingly abandoned for those, the very people who abandoned him. He knew they were going to turn against him. And that is ultimately why he, he did what he did. In the middle of his predictions of betrayal, just before those predictions became reality, Jesus holds out a promise of a covenant in his blood to the very people that he knew were going to turn their backs on him. So you're aware now this morning that you've been living your life as if God wasn't true? As if Jesus is not who he claims to be? As if there is nothing waiting for you on the other side that determines what your, what your destiny is going to be? Have you been living as if the claims of God in Scripture are not true? If so, you're right that this way of living has only added to the sense of abandonment that Jesus endured. You have turned your back on him. And in the sense, this kind of abandonment has been happening to him over and over ever since by those who refuse to acknowledge him as Lord. But Jesus knew of your sin perfectly, just as he knew that Peter would deny him. And he went through what he went through because he knew that you were going to deny, deny him too. And it is in this very awareness of your sin that Jesus holds out this promise that he will create a bond with you that will never be broken no matter how deep your sin goes. He went through what he went through so that you wouldn't get what you deserve. That's the message of Mark 14. Now, maybe you're here as a follower of Jesus who who recognizes you live securely in this covenant. You have the promise of a Savior who can empathize with you in your pain. I think that's another encouraging aspect of this text. You have the promise of a Savior who can empathize with you in your pain. The truth is that the very fact that in Christ we're accepted by God, that there's a covenant that binds us to Him that nothing can ever break, that truth alone should be enough to make all earthly abandonments. Anytime people here on this earth turn against us, it should make those things pale in comparison. They shouldn't even... They shouldn't even shake us in the moment if we realize we're secure in God's love in Christ. But the reality is that as long as we're here, we're imperfect people. And the acceptance that we long for from others, when it's not given to us, results in deep pain. And that's going to be the case as long as we walk this earth. And as we struggle to make the gospel's promises more of a reality in the way that we experience the world, we're promised, Hebrews 4, verse 15, that we have ourselves a high priest who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. While we wait for the day when there's no more pain, while we're still living in this broken world, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. Jesus has endured every sort of pain and sorrow that there is. In Him, we have a friend who understands perfectly and will never turn us away. So here's the implication of the promise, that we're never going to be abandoned. You lonely this morning? Jesus knows what that's like. His closest friends couldn't even stay awake on the night that he was going to die. He faced separation from his father all alone. You've been rejected, maybe by members of your own family? Jesus' family came and tried to shut him down as a crazy person. You feel like no one really gets you? No one understands, nobody cares to? Jesus was misunderstood to the end. Even those that he poured his life into misunderstood him to the end, expecting him to be a kind of Messiah that he just had not come to be. Feel like God himself has abandoned you? Like you call out to him and he's not there? Jesus himself endured that. And in the, in the very 
death of Jesus, you have the promise that God has not abandoned you. That even when you don't hear his voice, his plans, his purposes for you hold true. And he is securing your good no matter what it looks like in this world. You have the promise that if you are asking to see God and you haven't, you can look at him directly in the face of Christ. You're looking for God? Here he is. Here he is. And he came to this earth to be abandoned and rejected by those he came to save so that you would never have to be. So what does it look like to claim this relationship? To enjoy the security of his covenant? You've got to decide to forsake all other hopes, to stop living as if God isn't there, and to embrace Jesus as enough for you. What it looks like to enjoy the security of this covenant is to live, to be abandoned by all else, to have nothing else but Jesus, and to be satisfied in Him. That's what it looks like. That's really the only open question. Could you be abandoned by everything else and be satisfied in Jesus alone? That's the only question that matters. Will you pray with me? Lord, we, we ask for a better sense of the ways in which your grace needs to cover our sin. We know from experience that we get apathetic so easily and distracted so easily. And We pray that in the image of Jesus presented to us by Mark, we would see the face of one who stands ready to save us no matter how much we have failed him. We pray that you would help us to see the beauty that's in this story, the story of substitution, God himself taking on human form so that we would not have to endure the abandonment that we deserve. What we ask for, Lord, is that you would make this not abstract for us, but deeply real. We ask that it would touch everything and that it would motivate in us a desire to live for Jesus, even if it means we got to set everything else aside. We pray for a deep sense of the reality that in Jesus we are secure against all else. That in Jesus there is nothing that can come our way that we cannot endure. We pray for a living and active faith in him, and we pray in his name. Amen.